Today, we are investigating the biggest heist in France of a sole individual in over 20 years that took place during the buzz of the 2016 Paris Fashion Week. Thieves broke into a hotel, tied up one of the world's most well-known women in pop culture, robbed her at gunpoint, and vanished into the night with her jewels that were estimated to have been worth an incredible $5.6 million. This was a heist worthy of a Hollywood plotline that at the time graced the pages of news and entertainment sites around the globe. In a time where social media is at the heart of everyone's lives, this robbery capitalised on it. This is the story of the Kim Kardashian kidnapping. Hello and welcome to the podcast where we crack open the best high stories throughout history. Well, he decided to reenact the crime exactly as it's taking place. Find the defendant guilty. From train robberies to bank raids, and art napping to diamond looting, we're investigating the work of thieves. I'm Lauren, and I'm joined by my co-host Frankie, and this is Career Criminals. Frankie, want to tell us about the infamous Mrs. Kardashian West and her dalliance with some ruthless robbers? Born October 21st, 1980, in Beverly Hills, California, Kim Noel Kardashian is the daughter of Kris Jenner and the late Robert Kardashian. Robert was the founder of MovieTunes Inc., which is a marketing company, but he rose to fame as a big league attorney. You'll probably know him for being the defence lawyer in the notorious O.J. Simpson murder trial. Remember that infamous 90-minute car chase involving O.J.? You should do. Domino's Pizza recorded record sales as it aired live, with audiences glued to their TV sets. Well, on this trip, he was in fact leading the police to the Kardashian residence. Chris, a flight attendant before marrying was divorced by Robert in 1989 when he discovered through the work of a private investigator that she was having an affair with a soccer star, Todd Waterman. Only four years later, he sadly passed away in 2003 from cancer of the esophagus. Chris would proceed to manage all aspects of Kim's business and career as well as her other children as they rose up the ranks to stardom. As a teenager, Kim attended Marymount High School an exclusive Catholic girls' school where Sunday church was expected every week. But it was almost inevitable that she would rise to fame. She was classmates with Paris Hilton, with whom she fast became friends, and as the pair grew up in Hollywood, they experienced all it had to offer, as well as many of the pitfalls that seemed to go hand in hand. The Kardashian kids, whilst they had it all as children, were expected to stand on their own two feet come the age of 18 and not rely on the family's money. Kim said, We grew up with privilege, so we knew our standards were high. If we wanted to keep it, we had to work hard. So work hard they did. At the current age of 39, Kim can claim the titles of reality TV personality, businesswoman, socialite, model and actress. However, let's not forget her first taste of true media attention, Kim's sex tape. Yes, in 2007, a rather shocking 30-minute video was released that had been shot in 2002 with her then-boyfriend, Ray J, a rapper. It was titled Kim Kardashian Superstar and showcased their sexual exploits, leaving very little to the imagination. Once leaked, the video was then re-released by Vivid Entertainment, a large adult film company, who paid $1 million for it. Unfortunately for Kim, it was widely marketed, and it circulated fast. To this day, it remains the most-watched X-rated video of all time. She immediately countered by suing the company for invasion of privacy, and after three months, she finally accepted a $5 million settlement. She said this on the topic. It definitely puts you in a category that I'd wish upon no one. Your reputation is all you have. And if people prejudge you over something that you did, then that kind of sticks with you for a long time. As awful as that was, later on in the same year, 
her family were cast in the still-famous television series Keeping Up with the Kardashians, which has been on many of our TVs, whether we like to admit it or not. Hosted by E!, the show follows her family, and it wasn't long before there were multiple spin-offs with her sister Courtney. Her online presence on social media skyrocketed, and in 2015, Time magazine placed Kim in their 100 Most Influential People category, as well as being reported as the top-paid reality TV star in that same year. Right now, on Instagram alone, she has an incredible 185 million followers. Kim has capitalised on her fame to the nth degree, founding multiple businesses, selling clothing, beauty products, apps, and even appearing as an actress in films such as Disaster Movie. After a series of high-profile relationships, including being married before, in 2014, she married rapper Kanye West, becoming Kim Kardashian West, who she now has four children with. Now we know a little more about Kim... Let's go to the events leading to this robbery, and the robbery itself. We begin today's story in Paris, famously named the City of Lights and the capital of France. Ranked second in the world for most visited travel destination in 2019, and rich with museums and culture, it's no wonder people flock biannually to Paris Fashion Week to set their sights on the must-have looks of the moment. It is part of what's known as the Big Four Fashion Weeks, with the others being in London, Milan and New York. Famous brands such as Dior, Chanel, Louis Vuitton and Givenchy host their shows in famous landmarks such as the Louvre or the Grand Palais. After two years away from attending previously, Kim Kardashian is in the city of Paris, ready to attend a host of shows with her sister Courtney, who has never been before, for the spring-summer 2016 collections. Kendall Jenner, her younger half-sister, is walking the runway this year, and they're not about to miss it. On the 29th of September, she flies into Le Bourget Airport on her private jet, where she is joined by her assistant, Stephanie Shepard, and her buff German bodyguard, the formidable Pascal Duvier. Pascal is going to be busy this coming week, The paparazzi know her schedule like the back of their hand, and as soon as she deplanes, they swarm, greedy for an exclusive. Kim is used to the popularity, and knows that this will propel her yet further into the limelight, so welcomes the onslaught, stopping to pose, wearing the latest garments. It's been a long flight from America, so after dishing out money shots, all she wants to do is settle and regroup. Stepping into the black Mercedes van waiting for her, they make the short trip to her hotel. She unpacks in her apartment at the Hotel de Portal, also known as the No Address Hotel, on Rue Trochet in the upmarket Madeleine district. The apartment building is located directly behind the church where the district gets its name. The best shops in France reside here, mostly designer, and it's spitting distance from the opera house. This hotel is no stranger to the rich and famous, previously having guests such as Madonna, Beyoncé, or Zlatan Ibrahimović grace the hallways. In fact, you must be rich or famous to be welcomed here, ideally both, or at the very least be referred by someone who is. Yeah, Kim and Kanye had stayed here many times, most recently two years prior, in the lead-up to her wedding with Kanye. He has even maintained a semi-permanent residence here since 2011. Kim is staying in the Sky Penthouse, costing a dear $16,800 per night for a 3,790-square-foot apartment with uninhibited 360-degree views of the city. She spends the next hour reapplying her makeup and, of course, changing her outfit. This is the start of Paris Fashion Week, after all. The paparazzi are camped outside, ready and waiting as they would be for the rest of the week, knowing that a singular image could net them serious cash when sold to the right fashion designer or media outlet. They say a picture tells 1,000 words, but it also sells for $1,000 in Kim's case. Absolutely. Makeover complete, she steps out into the sea of flashes, the photographers celebrating her arrival in the city. Kim has long been affiliated with the brand Balmain, 
often opting to wear it to big events. So whilst here, she makes her way straight to their offices. The young creative director of the company personally fits a peekaboo crocheted dress for her. It has to be perfect, as she would be debuting the garment at the Balmain Show at the venue Hotel Potocki, a former residence of a noble Polish family. Kim has been featured on the invites and is to be the star of the show, flaunting her hourglass figure just 10 months since giving birth to her son. Later that afternoon, she posts the first of 15 Instagram posts of her stay in Paris, announcing to her eager followers that she is safe and well, captioning it with Parisian vibes. At around 6pm, Kim dines at the La Avenue restaurant. But whilst on her way in, she is accosted by a Ukrainian media personality named Vitaly Saduk. He is famed for assaulting celebrities in one form or another, and today, Kim is his target. He bowls over to her and attempts to kiss Kim Kardashian's infamous heart-shaped behind. Pascal Duvier quickly comes to her rescue and wrestles him to the ground before Vitaly manages to hit his target. Around a dozen photographers capture the activity, tripping over one another. Any excitement would surely score them a quick buck. Day two runs a little more smoothly, as Kanye West flies in to join his wife for the day for some of the shows. He will be flying back to New York that evening to be with his children and resume his concert tour, but he is happy to make the quick trip. After all, like her, he has a vested interest in the fashion world, with his own lines. Kim is feeling loved up and posts a seductive selfie with diamond grills in her mouth and her large engagement ring in shot captioning it only with three diamond emojis. The next few days go by in a blur. It's day five and Kim has changed outfits more time than she can count over the course of the day and poses for photo opportunities every time. She wears a beautiful lace ivory dress to the Ricardo Tisky Givenchy show at the Jardin de Plante and sits in the front row alongside Courtney Love and Gigi Hadid. Here, Kim uploads yet another Instagram post. This time, she's wearing an off-shoulder trench coat with thigh-high, large-checked leather boots, with her bodyguard a few paces back. Her caption is, This guy is always in my shot. She then attends a late private dinner at the Aliyah showroom, hosted in honour of her and her sisters. In attendance are the likes of Bianca Jagger and the editor-in-chief of Vogue Italia, Franca Suzani. As Kim and her sister Courtney enter, the room quietens as they take their seats. They dine on truffled scrambled eggs and a true French classic, saint honor cake. After, they move on to party at the infamous La Arc Paris. But as it nears 1am, Kim decides to head home for a night of rest to prepare for another busy day in Paris. The driver of the black Mercedes van takes Kim, Courtney and Courtney's assistant Stephanie Shepard back to the hotel in relative calm since the paparazzi have chosen to let Kim wind down for the evening. She plans to go to bed when she gets back to maybe do some work on her laptop. However, her younger sisters Courtney and Kendall decide that the night is still young so after returning to the hotel, her bodyguard Pascal Duvier will head out with her sisters. When the girls arrive back, a single receptionist is on duty to greet them, situated inside a glass facade. She carries on up to her room. Courtney freshens up, changes her outfit and says goodbye to Kim. Everything is documented on Snapchat, of course, including Courtney's departure to the party. Kim, winding down, undresses, takes a shower, dons a robe and reclines on the bed to catch up with any work that has come through. Meanwhile, a Brazilian beer company has rented the courtyard below for an event linked to Fashion Week. A fashion designer, Christoph Guillaume, said, Do you know there's a Kardashian upstairs? It was like a joke. She's upstairs while we are partying. There was no bodyguard at the front door, no bodyguard inside. There was a girl at the entrance who asked, are you coming to the party? And if you said yes, she let you in. For somewhere that houses some of the most rich and famous, the security is a little lacking. The aim is to create a haven where guests can come and go as they please in privacy, 
but the lax security and lack of CCTV cameras in the grounds proper practically welcomes the wily thief with open arms. There is an entrance door with a code, but an employee says that the code has allegedly remained unchanged for six years and is probably known by a great many people. The owners of this private and secure hotel are about to receive a serious wake-up call. At 2.18am, a camera in the vicinity picks up three men on bicycles, all wearing high-visibility jackets, cycling towards the hotel. Then almost a quarter of an hour passes and two men appear on foot, followed by a sixth man attempting to hide his face under his hood when he spots the camera. 39-year-old Abdul Rahman, a northern Algerian man studying for his doctorate by day at the University of Paris, is the night porter on duty tonight. He's not employed directly for the hotel, but was hired as a guard and is quick to let the first three mystery men in. Just let them in? Does he know them? He doesn't. He thinks that they are French policemen, conned by their all-black clothing. One is wearing a police cap and ski mask. Unfortunately for our porter, before he can even react, there is a gun pressed into the small of his back, and these thieves make light work of cuffing his wrists. Where are the security cameras? One of the robbers asks. There aren't any, the porter replies. Are you kidding me? How many rooms in this hotel? Are there any safes? There are eleven. Oh, that's nice. We will do them all. Don't panic. We're here for the money. Next, they demand, Abdul Rahman takes the master keys from behind the desk, and dragging him by the scruff of his neck, they head straight for the Sky Penthouse. Kim is relaxing in what she thinks is the safety of her own room, still wrapped in her bathrobe and hair up. Startled, she hears someone enter the apartment. Hello? Nothing. Before she can even explore further, two hooded men burst into the bedroom, along with the night security, who is tied up. She screams. Are they terrorists? Is she about to be kidnapped? Kim's heart feels like it's going to leave her body. Is she going to die? The man with the ski mask pulls her from her bed and he is not gentle. He snatches her mobile phone and holds a gun to her face and she begins to cry in sheer terror. Don't kill me. I have babies. Don't kill me, please. I have babies. I'm a mum. Take whatever you want, Kim screams. She believes she is in imminent danger of being murdered. The men drag her from the bedroom and into the hallway at the top of the stairs. In fight or flight mode, it flashes through her mind that maybe she can make a break for it down the stairs. But then, would they shoot her in the back? If she made it, there's every chance they would give her chase. What if she did make it, but the elevator didn't open in time? She could take the service stairs, but is the door to those locked? Then what? She would be trapped and would have angered the robbers. It seems futile, and her thoughts only panic her further. Abdul Rahman desperately tries to calm her down. They drag her back into the room. He can see the robber restraining her is deranged and could flip out at any moment. Loud, angry French from the robber was being met with Kim's terrified, shrieking English. Abdul Rahman begs her to be quiet and calm down. Are we going to die, Kim asks. I don't know, he replies. If I wanted to calm her down, I would probably answer no. Instead, the thieves repeat a multitude of times, Money! 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 Unfortunately for Kim, she only has $1,000 on her, not nearly enough to appease them. They know her worth and they came here for much more than that. They stash the grand like pocket money and immediately demand more. See, like millions of others, they know of her $4 million engagement ring given to her by Kanye. After all, she wasn't shy about flaunting it on social media a few days prior. The ring was placed on the bedside table and willing to give up everything, Kim gestures in that direction. At this point, everything seems replaceable except her life, which she very much feared for. One robber collects the ring, wearing gloves, obviously. He acts quite nonchalant about it, considering it's a 20-carat Lorraine Schwartz diamond from Bergdorf Goodman in New York. 
They sweep up any jewellery they find and rifle through Kim's bag, then push her onto the bed. They make short work of tying her wrists and ankles, taping her mouth with gaffer tape, and carry her to the bathroom, placing her in the bath. In total, the thieves filch two diamond Cartier bracelets, a gold and diamond Jacob necklace, diamond earrings from the same shop as her ring was purchased, a gold Rolex and some other jewellery, as well as the ring. About 40 or so minutes have passed since the thieves entered her room, but for Kim it feels like a lifetime. A stroke of luck hits, Kim's phone lights up, someone is calling. You know who is ringing now? Abdul Rahman says to the robbers. It's her bodyguard. If she doesn't answer, he will come with the police. The thieves were about to move out of Kim's apartment and carry on to the next rooms, but think better of it and they leave as surreptitiously as they arrived. A security camera from a nearby business picks up the men cycling away, and a bag can be seen hanging from the handlebars of one of the bikes containing the stolen jewellery. The camera also picks up some of their faces. At around 3am, Courtney receives a strange and worrying message from Simone Harouche, Kim's stylist and long-term friend who is staying in a room in the hotel, in a bedroom below her. It simply says, Who's here with Kim? I just heard her say, take whatever you want. Kim is now in the bath, squeezing her wrists out of the plastic ties and then undoing the tape around her ankles. Once free, she rushes first to the balcony, screaming for help, then braves the courage to run to Simone's room. Courtney isn't confused from the strange text for long because seconds later Kim calls from Simone's phone, screaming, help me, over and over at the very top of her lungs. Courtney feels sick and her knees buckle slightly. Everyone's night grinds to a halt with the sobering realisation that something awful has happened and they head straight back to rally around Kim. The authorities arrive minutes later They quickly cordon off the crime scene, gather evidence, and begin to interview the victims. By 4.30am, Kim is relaying the harrowing events of the crime to the French police. She is shaken and needs all the support she can get. After formally signing her statement, arrangements are made for her to fly back home. After this life-altering event, she just wants to be back in the comfort of her home with her babies. She cancels her attendance at major shows such as the Chanel, Louis Vuitton or Miu Miu events. And at 7.15am that same morning, she travels from the hotel to Le Bourget Airport. As she crosses the tarmac from the black Mercedes van to the plane, she holds a blanket over her head, hiding from any paparazzi that had caught wind of the events that had taken place only hours earlier. The whole family departs, which is a crushing blow for the paparazzi, since their income had been cut short by her early departure. Kanye is notified mid-song during one of his sets. He notifies the crowd, I have to stop the show, family emergency, and the concert abruptly stops. It takes Kim around eight hours to make her journey home, where she falls into the arms of her husband upon arrival in New York City. Chris Jenner, her mother, and her boyfriend, Corey Gamble, are not far behind. All are escorted back to their Manhattan apartment with a larger-than-usual security detail. Not long after the event, a resident walks by the hotel on a sidewalk and stumbles upon Kim's platinum cross necklace. It must have fallen off the bicycle in the rush to get away the night before. They hand it into the police. It's likely to be the only piece of jewellery that is retrieved from the robbery. The thieves' plans would already have been in motion to sell any stolen items on the black market, or break it down for scrap. A judge is appointed who will work with Kim's attorney and prosecutor. Meanwhile, as the news travels Paris and beyond, everyone is running wild with speculation. One fashion mogul says that following day that the robbery is being debated like a trend or a new designer. Some people hated it. Some people loved it. At one show, I sat between two people with opposing views. On one side was a person who was really upset by the whole episode and said it was appalling that someone should be robbed and held at gunpoint. 
On my other side was someone who said that she had no compassion for the incident because of how much Kim flaunted her extravagance, particularly those rings on social media. Both made valid points. Carl Lagerfeld, fashion designer and creative director of Chanel, was one of the sceptics. He says, I don't understand why she was in a hotel with no security. If you're that famous and you put all your jewellery on the internet, then you go to a hotel where nobody can come near to the room. You cannot display your wealth and then be surprised that some people want to share it with you. Abdul Rahman, the hotel security guard, capitalises on the situation. Or perhaps he is trying to be nice. I guess he is a victim too. Yeah, he goes to the press a few days after the robbery. He claims it is out of remorse for Kim and to clear up the fact that he wishes he could have done more. There was also speculation that the robbery was staged for insurance purposes. I think his actions are in response to an article from a website that said Kim had told the authorities in her statement that Abdul Rahman was very calm during the whole affair. He might think he could be seen as complicit in the crime and so perhaps covering himself from any conspiracies that might pop up against him. Well, Closer magazine track Abdul Rahman down for the scoop. This is what Benjamin Darjon, the editor of the French edition of the magazine, had to say. The word calm seared. Did it mean uncaring or worse, afraid? Either way, he was a bit upset about what they wrote. He told me that he was calm because he was held at gunpoint and it was his way to save his life and Kim's life. He wanted to convey his feelings to Kim, but he had no contact information for her. So he asked the editor to publish a letter to Kim on the Closer magazine website and he texted its contents. That's very convenient for both parties. I'm sure some money was made in that exchange. The letter reads... Dear Kim, when you feel the cold steel of a gun at your neck, it's the moment when remaining calm can mean the difference between life and death, both our lives. I hope that you are feeling better. He signed it off with, The Night. The letter circulated globally. Unsurprisingly, Kim didn't respond. Abdul Rahman left his job and since he was a victim too, did a few more interviews Another letter is sent to Kim, but this one is sent to her directly, and it's from the Paris paparazzi. 25 of them had come together to take a group photo. Cameras on the ground in front of them stood together with the Eiffel Tower behind them. It was a photographer named Mark Piasecki's idea. It is to show solidarity with Kim by being vulnerable, allowing her to see their faces, as usually they remain hidden behind their cameras. Only one copy is sent to Kim with this message. To Kim and the Kardashians, we don't love you because we need you. We need you because we love you. Your favourite French paps. That's a much sweeter letter. What a lovely idea. She's always posed for them and made their job easy up until this point. So I assume it's a letter of gratitude as well as support. Yeah, no ulterior motive there. Shall we move on to the authorities' next steps? Founded in 1812, the headquarters of the Paris Criminal Police, on 36 Quai d'Orfèvre, normally nicknamed 36, received the call from the no-name hotel just after 3am. Police chief Christian Sunt was awoken from his slumber to be briefed of the armed robbery. He was more than equipped to take on the case, having successfully co-led the investigation at the Bataclan Concert Hall Le Stade de France and cafes in Paris, when there were brutal Islamist terrorist attacks, causing the deaths of 130 innocents two years prior. He had a distinguished and lengthy career. The first potential line of inquiry that the authorities follow is that the robbers could have been stalking Kim through her growing pack of paparazzi. The gang had grown very large by day five, it would have presented the perfect cover to track her movements. Although, it would have been just as easy to follow her through social media, the same as the other 186 million followers, since she documented almost every detail day to day. Chief Sunt wasn't aware of who Kim Kardashian West was, even though millions knew her globally. 
How did he manage to avoid that? I know. Apparently, his second-in-command didn't know her either. Well, after a quick Google search, the chief said, Now I know almost everything about her. How the robbers knew Kim, whether they even knew her at all, and if they did how they stalked her, was all in question. But what wasn't disputed was their chosen mode of transportation. Frédéric Plocan, a French journalist, said, If you ride a bike in Paris, you have to know Paris. The Hotel de Portal is in the centre of Paris, where there are a lot of CCTV cameras. But on a bike, you can ride the small streets where there are no cameras. Not only that, but bicycles, as we know, are pretty much untraceable. They don't have licence plates. They can avoid traffic and they can easily be hidden or destroyed. Although according to the chief of the French police, it was the first incidence of bicycles being used in a robbery that rewarded the criminals so handsomely. When Sunt was questioned as to whether the robbery was real rather than staged, the chief said, At this time, there is no doubt about the reality of the crime. The police had their work cut out for them. This high-profile case would require hundreds of police man-hours. The French journalist Plocan also said, Dozens of potential suspects know about this place because celebrities stay there for a long time. They think they'll be free of cameras, free to receive friends, visitors, but drivers, bodyguards, paparazzi and maids all know about this place. That makes maybe hundreds of people who know about this place. This makes the investigation very complex. You have hundreds of suspects. Home invasions were very common in Paris, since most banks had become extremely hard to rob successfully. The thieves had to change their tactics and rob people directly. There were extremely high taxes on the rich in France, so most of those with high personal wealth tended to keep their riches at home, and therefore were extremely vulnerable to this sort of attack. Most of these thieves were born in France and hail from North Africa, in countries such as Algeria, Morocco or Tunisia, and others from Romania, as gypsies. This new type of career criminal was smart and up-to-date with the world and the way it worked. A writer, Jean-Baptiste Rox, relayed a story of his sister-in-law that went through a similar ordeal to Kim. He said, They treat you like a sausage in bondage. Yeah, they call it saucyonage. <laughs> he further said, They put your family members in different rooms, tie you up and ask each of you where is the safe and what is the code. In a country where it is quite difficult to find guns, the rope is one of the most dangerous weapons a criminal can use. When the gang that robbed my sister-in-law was finally arrested, they told the judge that they targeted their victims thanks to the party pages in French Vogue. A few days later after the robbery, my sister-in-law's father received a letter from the gangsters in which they required the appraisal documents for the jewels so they could sell them more easily. They threatened him with death if he didn't comply. He did respond to the letter, and although he had to admit there weren't appraisal documents, he was not murdered. The jewels, unsurprisingly, were never found. Although home invasions are a common occurrence and not to be taken lightly, there was a special emphasis on Kim's case. Her celebrity status, mixed with the value of the robbed items, meant that the special Paris crime unit, Le Brigade de Repression du Banditism, or the BRB for short, much easier to say, got involved. The brigade was led by Madame Commissioner Agnes Zanardi, who along with a hundred officers, specialised in robberies of this kind. There wasn't much hope in recovering the jewellery. A jewellery theft expert, Scott Selby, said, What happens next is that these thieves will bring the diamonds and jewellery to somebody they already have lined up, before they did this job. A fence. What happens after that is the fence will take apart this jewellery so that it loses value. And now you have all these separate stones. A fence is the person who buys the stolen goods to resell them. Basically, a middleman who gets individuals to buy the stolen goods, who normally have no idea that items are stolen. It's slang that was coined in the 1700s, that's abbreviated from the word defence. 
someone who will sell your items on and in turn provide you defence from being caught. Then the diamonds and metals will likely be sold on the black market. He further said, Diamonds like that change hands five times in two days in Antwerp's diamond district. Nobody will ever know. They will be on the finger of Americans within six months to a year. Then he said this about some of the larger stones stolen in Kim's heist. You have three choices. You could either hold on to it. You can sell it to a buyer who is fine with it being stolen, which is very hard to find. Or you can change the stones to make them unrecognisable. Anybody in the trade would be able to tell these were Kim Kardashian's diamonds. That doesn't sound promising. Chief Sint was briefed each morning with any updates on the investigation. At the time, he said, We can say that there is a professional team that committed this crime, and they seem to be organised. That's why the BRB is on the case. The BRB has experience with people who attack with arms, and a big part of the brigade is now working on the Kim Kardashian case. Everything in this case, as it still is today, was widely debated, discussed and dissected. Kim Kardashian West's name in the case was enough to catapult it to a worldwide level. Tourism had dipped since the terrorist attacks, and so it was important that this was solved. I bet that was a nightmare for police. So much pressure. Yeah, even Hillary Clinton added to the pressure by saying mid-campaign... Wow, I really felt bad for her. The whole world is talking about this story because it's Kim Kardashian. The image of Paris will still take a hit. We must stop these offenders as soon as possible. The assault on the American reality television star completed the image of Paris as too dangerous for the richest visitors, Le Poix, a French article noted. Embarrassing when we think that the luxury and fashion sectors represents 17.2 billion euros. So the very guarded British capital, with its streets lined with cameras, reassures a clientele that has gone from suspicion to fear. Chief Sant responded saying, I'm very confident when he was questioned about how his team were doing on the case. It's important because of the implication. Is Paris secure? It's important economically. So that's another reason why it is important for us to solve this case. So there's a lot riding on him and his team. Yeah, I wonder if we can expect a highly experienced career criminal here, considering the frequency of homejackings. Well, there was lots of talk that the heist must have been carried out by smooth, well-oiled robbers. One of the potential gangsters that the police flagged were the Pink Panthers. They popped up as potential suspects in the Hatton Garden heist. They seem to be considered for a lot of these robberies. I wonder if they find it flattering. I guess that's what you get when you're implicated in a fair few high-stakes robberies across France. Among their ranks were highly educated, multilingual men. With all this said, it was slightly surprising when the actual culprits were arrested and charged three months after the crime. They weren't well-oiled criminals, like the Hatton Garden heist, but were old-time thieves known to the police, who were looking to secure their retirement. They did have the same motive as the Hatton guys then. In total, there were nine men and one woman involved, but the core team was made up of five experienced but low-level ruffians. Mr Pierre Bouinet was the ringleader. At 72, he was infamous amongst the gangsters in Paris. The police thought that after his arrest in Nice a few years back for possession of two kilos of cocaine, that he had retired. Then there was Eunice Abbas, a 63-year-old who had previously been convicted for aggravated theft, drug trafficking, and indicted for a robbery with an organised gang, kidnapping, and forcible confinement. Abbas was the criminal who dropped the cross found by the resident the following morning. Omar I. Kadash, 60, also known as Omar the Old, was the third member of the gang and led with Pierre. He was on the run from a drug trafficking trial six years previous. The authorities believe he ran the operation at the hotel. It was his DNA the police found at the scene. Blue Eyes Didier Dubreik, also 60, and Francois Delaporte were Omar's friends. They, like Omar, were old hands in the organised crime business. 
And finally, we have Marceau Baumgartner, 64, nicknamed Shredded Nose, who made his business in money laundering and falsification. He was the fence who likely took the jewels to Antwerp in Belgium, the diamond capital. Right, I feel like I need to Google what Shredded Nose looks like immediately. Omar's girlfriend, Christiane, 70, was involved along with his son, Harmony Aikadash. Harmony was the baby of the group at 27 and the driver. It was thought by authorities that they had been tracking Kim for a couple of years. They were simply biding their time for Kim to be alone long enough to rob. In fact, they had considered robbing her on her last visit, but she was with her husband and others. Omar the Old tried his hand at an apology to Kim by the way of a letter sent to her legal team. It read, I want to come to you as a human being to tell you how much I regret my gesture, how much I've been moved and touched to see you in tears. Know that I fully sympathise with the pain you're enduring, your children, your husband and your close ones. I hope this letter will allow you to forget, little by little, the trauma you suffered by my fault. Coincidental timing just before the trial. Yep, Kim's lawyers thought exactly the same, especially as he first sent it to the judge, who then forwarded it to her legal team. I'm sure he wouldn't have risked sending a letter if he hadn't been caught. For her representation, Kim hired a French lawyer, Jean Vey, who had a prestigious clientele, including the former French president, Jacques Chirac, and the L'Oreal heiress, Francoise Betancourt-Myers. He said this about Kim to the media, I found her particularly calm, serene, in a matter that must have upset her very much. When we know the conditions in which she was actually assaulted, tied up with a gun towards her, we shall see what happens next. Faye also made it clear to the media that should the judge summon her, she would return to France. However, at the beginning of February, rather than flying to France, she was allowed to testify in New York. It took most of the day, from 10am to 6pm. This is what Kim had to say about the day. It was just a really long thing, because you have to explain it to a translator, and then the translator has to explain it to the judge. Then she writes it with the clerk, and then they have to read what you wrote. You have to do it sentence by sentence. Going in there, I was so worked up wanting to explain it so quickly, and you just can't do that. You just have to, like, be really slow and walk through the entire night, like, second by second. And that was just really hard. She was also handed photos and videos of the suspects to identify and further said, Just by their height and weight, I could tell who from this lineup was in the room with me. I was able to see who confessed. One of them was the guy that was in the room with me and it was very interesting to hear his story. It was pretty similar to my story. Of course, there was like a few things they're not saying to get lesser charges but they were pretty honest and did tell most of the story exactly like how it happened. It's really interesting to see what their side of the story is and to hear the background information about how they had been following me and how they attempted to rob me last time I was in Paris, but my husband was with me. And the jewellery, was any of it recovered? Omar confessed that all the jewellery had been melted down just as the police had suspected. All except the engagement ring. He said in his testimony, One of us took care of that. He came back with bars. Altogether, there must have been a bit more than 800 grams. Unfortunately, but predictably, everything was sold on, including the ring. Kim, on a final note to the judge, said, For two weeks before we left, we were already afraid we might be victims of a terrorist attack if we left the country. And not only by going to Paris. I had this foreboding... I want to tell you this because it was such a strong feeling. Every night in Paris, I said a prayer of thanks that nothing had happened to us. It would be so hard not to form an anxious relationship with your thoughts after something like that. It would stay with you for a long time. Following her testimony, Kim made some decisions in regards to publicity to allow herself to heal. After all, it would be a long while until a court case was brought forward 
as her ordeal was a huge and public event. She had been lying low since the robbery, and after having to relive the events in front of a judge, was in no rush for her life to return to normal. After what she had been through, she wondered if it ever would. Sadly, Kanye was hospitalised only a month after the robbery, which resulted in the cancellation of the rest of his tour, and there was intense speculation that his wife's hold-up took a big hit to his mental health. His mother-in-law tried to quell the rumours by saying, He's exhausted, he's just really tired, he had a gruelling tour and it's been a grind, so he just needs some rest. For the second time since the programme began, the filming of Kim's reality TV show, Keeping Up With The Kardashians, was suspended by her choice. The only other time this had happened was when Chloe's husband Lamar Odom was hospitalised after a stroke. Whilst pausing filming, she was not seen in the public eye for some time. Kim also took the opportunity to take a break from posting on her social media sites. She only began posting on January 13th after a three-month break, and when she did, the posts focused heavily on family. Many criticised her for her posting habits prior to the robbery. On The Ellen Show, through hell-back tears, she said, It was meant to happen to me. I really feel like things happen in your life to teach you things. It was probably no secret, and you see it in the show. I was being flashy, and I was definitely materialistic before. Like, I don't care about that stuff. I don't care to show off the way I used to. Even though there's nothing wrong, truly it's okay if you're proud of that, and you work so hard and you get something. It's just not who I am anymore. I've learned through experience not to post things in real time. I might take a photo, save it, post it when I leave the place, or when I'm in a different location, because I don't think that worked out for me so well when I was posting every last detail. I tried to share my life, I definitely love doing that, but I think I'm a little bit more cautious these days about what I do share. I think it's so important. It's about boundaries. At home, I don't have my phone. Dinner time, breakfast time, there's no phone. Unlike posting on social media, she began filming much sooner, after taking only a three-week hiatus, but didn't open up about the heist immediately. I'd imagine her lawyers, and the fact that it was an open investigation, meant she was asked not to, even if she was ready to talk about it. All in all, it took a year for her to finally open up, and when she did, she made it clear from a social media post on Twitter that she wanted to tell the story straight from the horse's mouth rather than via any words from interviews which could have been twisted. Her tweet read as follows. I have always shared so much. I'm not going to hold back when this was probably one of the most life-changing experiences for me. I would never wish the experience upon anyone, but have learned some valuable lessons. Feel so blessed to be safe home with my babies and husband. To my friends, family and loved ones, I can't thank you enough for being there when I needed you the most. To the French police, thank you for your incredible hard work. After this event, Kim understandably updated her security detail. A source told People magazine, Pascal no longer works for Kim and Kanye, but he wasn't fired. He instead reassigned himself to another family for professional reasons. Pascal thought that he did let Kim down and didn't do his job properly in Paris. They all agreed that it was better for Kim and Kanye to hire a completely new security team. I'm still not sure I believe that he wasn't fired. I reckon it was a forced resignation at best. Well, about a month after the robbery, Pascal Duvier no longer worked for the Kardashian Wests, although he did work with the rest of the family before moving on. It wasn't until two years after the robbery that things turned a little bitter when Kim's insurance company decided to sue. A lawsuit was taken up for $6.1 million against Pascal and the company that employed him, Protect Security. The case did not centre around his choice to remain out as security to Courtney and Kendall. Instead, most of the blame centred around the fact that he did not correct various security breaches at the hotel. Okay, so with Pascal gone, what security did Kim and Kanye opt for? Well, they definitely beefed up their detail. The more, the merrier. A source close to the family revealed that amongst those dressed in traditional security guard gear, they also have many operating undercover. 
Kim faced a lot of scepticism in the weeks following the robbery. Unluckily for her, an Olympic swimmer, Ryan Locked, had recently made a false robbery claim. A popular gossip site called Media Takeout published claims that Kim too had done the same, and she was quick to file a defamation lawsuit against them. Two weeks later, she did drop the legal action when the site published a formal apology. The apology read, After speaking to sources, including some connected to the Kardashians, we are now confident and without a doubt believe that Kim Kardashian was robbed, as was reported by the Paris police. Anyone who is still questioning it is wrong. On an episode of Keeping Up With The Kardashians, Kim said, People like Howard Stern said that I should go to jail if this is fake. And I'm like, why would anyone make it up? I wouldn't make up that, like, my ring got stolen and then have to never wear my ring. Why would I want to look unsafe for more people to target me? I think most of the disbelief in her claims stemmed from a video released that showed Kim shortly after the robbery. She's using her mobile in the video, which she reported as stolen, and there seems to be no ligature marks from potentially being bound at the wrists. Each media outlet that showed the video had to take it down the following day. Kim had filed for a gag order to have the video removed from any articles, which was granted on the grounds that it was all part of an ongoing police investigation. This does seem a little suspicious, but I believe Chief Sant earlier, the lead in the investigation, when he said that there was no doubt the robbery was real and it did happen. Let's get up to speed with where this case is in 2020. Lauren, do the honours. Omar was sentenced to five years in jail for a robbery that took place two years prior to the Kardashian heist in the Parisian suburb of Neuilly-sur-Seine. However, on April 30th, 2020, he was released from jail after only three years behind bars, after his lawyer Chloe Arnoux had battled for his early release due to health reasons. She said that her client was actually very far from the fantasized image of a great bandit that he is portrayed as publicly. All the robbers are currently only under legal supervision and technically at liberty. However, in June 2020, the prosecutors of the case sought to take it to court. If agreed, the trial will likely take place towards the start of 2021. Omar's release in April earlier this year will tie in with the preparing for the Kardashian robbery trial adequately, whilst also allowing him time to recover and represent himself well. The charges will be armed robbery, kidnapping and criminal association. Meanwhile, Kim has spent the last two years taking an interest in social justice herself. In May 2018, she lobbied Donald Trump, the American president, as she learned of Alice Johnson's story. In 1996, the 63-year-old great-grandmother was served a life sentence in prison for a non-violent drug-related crime and was not eligible for parole, a heavy sentence of which at this point she had already served 21 years. Incredibly, Kim's celebrity status gained her the company of Donald Trump himself, rather than the White House officials, which would be the ordinary response. The president, ever a fan of social media platform Twitter, even tweeted a photo of them both at the Oval Office, with the caption, Great meeting. Following this, Kim was able to share the good news with Johnson, and she was subsequently released. With her success, Kim decided to take on a four-year apprenticeship with a San Fran law firm, which will mean, if completed that she will sit her California bar exam in 2022. She has also funded a legal program devoted to helping others similar to Alice Johnson by commuting sentences of those who have been charged with their first non-violent drug offence. So far, the program has helped 17 people. A two-hour documentary has been filmed about it, called Kim Kardashian West, The Justice Project. So, although no jail time has been dealt just yet, I think we can safely say there will be a substantial price to pay for these career criminals. This robbery went viral in a matter of hours, thanks to the sort of world we live in today, as social media sure did publicise it, 
and may well have also been its cause. Stealing from one of the world's most influential women, this was the biggest French heist in 20 years of a sole individual, and I imagine an example will be made of these robbers. It seems the less-than-humble Kim, pre-robbery, has changed some of her ways for the better. As unfortunate as it was, it sets an example to be more cautious if your life is predominantly in the limelight. Yeah, and for those of you keen to hear more on this, it's rumoured that a film is in the pipeline for 2021 by French comic book artist and filmmaker Joanne Svar. In his words, it is said to be about violence against women, the relationship between the very rich and the less rich, the world of fashion and the encounter between figures of new and old worlds. Until then, for those of you who like comics, you can already peruse his graphic novel titled Fashion Week, based on the events. Today, I'll leave you with a quote from Kim. I think that my perception of jewellery now is that I'm not so attached to it as I used to be. I don't have the same feeling about it. In fact, I even think that it has become a bit of a burden to have the responsibility of such expensive jewels. There is nothing of sentimental value to compare with the act of going home and finding one's children and one's family. We hope you've enjoyed this episode. Head to our website, www.careercriminalspodcast.com to find a copy of our transcript read here today and details of our sources. If you'd like to get in touch, give us a follow on Instagram, which is at careercriminalspodcast. Feel free to directly message us via this platform with your thoughts on this case or any interesting info you think we may have missed. Lastly, please do take the time to leave us an iTunes review, as we rely on these to help more people discover this podcast. Today's episode was written and hosted by Lauren Miles and Frankie Forrester. The production was by Lauren, and music by YK Productions. So Lauren, for a little light relief after our case, the Kim Kardashian kidnapping... We come again to my special little segment. Come with me on a journey. This is the story of a mugging by a mug. It's the summer of 2013. The target has been chosen. Let's set the scene. We're in the neighbourhood of Dorchester, Boston, Massachusetts, in the US of A. Dorchester is home to many famous actors, including Matt Damon and Mark Wahlberg. In 1765, it was also the first place to build and run a chocolate factory. However, it is also a place where happy hours are against the law. This episode's criminal made the police's job so easy for them, they didn't even break a sweat apprehending him. Obviously, the goal is to try your hardest to evade capture. Otherwise, what would be the point, right? Most wear gloves to avoid fingerprints, or masks to conceal their faces, and the more successful criminals tend to research and plan. It's just before midnight, and the victim is walking through Harbour Middle Schoolyard. She notices a man walking behind her. He's around six foot, white, medium build, white t-shirt, and dark shorts. She can pick out in the streetlights he has a mop of mousy blonde hair. He doesn't speak, but he seems to be gaining on her. Out of suspicion, she picks up her pace. He comes at her from behind. They struggle briefly. He grabs her clutch and makes a break for it. In the clutch was her state ID, $40 in cash, and a reusable public transit ticket, known as a Charlie card. As the victim gathers herself back together, she notices the mugger has dropped a bag on the floor. But it's not hers, it's his. She bends down to have a look through. There are some belongings of his in there, including clothing, hygiene products, and a pair of trainers. The most interesting things in the bag, though, is the assailant's birth certificate and a letter from his mother. He is Zachary Tatoni, born in 1987 of Southington, Connecticut. 
The victim calls the police and makes her statement, furnishing them with a description of the thief. Patrol cars are notified of Tentoni's description and it's not long before they spot a man at 1.35am, a block away from where the crime took place. The officer asks him his name. He says he is John Foisy from Connecticut, born in 1993. He has no identification to prove this, so they take him back to the station. Unsurprisingly, the victim positively identifies him as the attacker, as well as the police matching him to his ID. It's not Tentoni's first brush with the law, and he has charges for other counts of criminal mischief. The following week, he is booked into a local jail, and Dorchester District Court sets his bail at $500. What an idiot. (laughs) He has to be the worst robber ever. (laughs) Yep. Yep. 